Well, good morning, everyone. I mean, I'm just saying we're in the book of Romans. See, I, every time I say that, it's just exciting to me. I uh, have been loving the journey in the book of Romans. Uh, it's an incredible letter that we get to explore. Uh, we are currently, um, in, in terms of the historical context with Paul as he writes this letter to the church in Rome. Remember, he's writing this letter to the church in Rome because he's planning to move his headquarters from Antioch to Rome, and he wants to clarify the gospel of Jesus Christ for the church in Rome so that he gets there and it's already been done so they can dialogue. So we have been exploring this extraordinary unpacking of the gospel, and we have traveled through Romans chapter 1 through 8. We're in Romans 9 now. Remember, we're heading toward Romans 12 where he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, here's how you respond. So we know that Romans 1 through, through 11 is really an unpacking of the wondrous majesty of God's mercy. So that at the end of 11, we're literally undone by his mercy. And, and that's what we've been traveling through. Really, when we got to chapter 8, it seems that chapter 8 is kind of a pinnacle uh, of the implications of the gospel. Because you get to chapter 8 and it starts, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because what the law could not do in that it was weakened by our sinful nature, Christ did for us by His great work. And then it shows us how through the Holy Spirit and our receiving of the Spirit, we are empowered, uh, we, are, we are preserved for eternity, we are, uh, we are made sons and daughters of God. I mean, all these incredible things, our belonging to God, us as a people of God. And then, of course, it ends in Romans chapter 8, just so you know, nothing can ever separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. But you kind of end there and you're like, oh, and then chapter 9 begins, and it's a bit of an abrupt change, isn't it? If you remember, you kind of you expect the next grand, like, wow, and then it kind of goes, hey, just so you know from Paul, I grieve the fact that many of my kinsmen, ethnic Israel, have rejected the Messiah, and I, and I grieve that. So you're like, hold on, where'd that come from? But if you know the historical context, you know that the church in Rome is a mixed church of Gentiles and Jews, and that by this time at the end of chapter 8, though those in Christ are incredibly excited, they also begin as an ethnic Israel within the church to ask a question. Hold on. So you have systematically from chapter 1 to chapter 8 demonstrated how all the things we thought made us a people of God, we thought saved us to be right with God, does not actually end up saving us. Our ethnicity, the bloodline to Abraham, uh, our, our covenant of circumcision, because we have that, we're saved. No. The law, no. Because all these things were weakened by our sinful nature, the virus that was within us. The only thing that could undo the virus is the great redemptive work of Jesus. And so the question that emerges is, those who are part of ethnic Israel that reject the Messiah, are they now people that don't belong to God in terms of his nation? So they are, they are no longer in the family. And if that's the case, because it seems to be what you're saying, then how are you faithful to the promises you made to them? That's where chapter 9 began. And we unpacked a number of things there, and most recently in chapter 9, you remember God's answer to that question was, okay, if we want to talk fair, let's do this. It should have been Ishmael, not Isaac, right? 
because Ishmael came first, and even though it was a mess because of Sarah's choice and Abraham, Abraham's decision, uh, it was, he's still the firstborn, so I should have gone with Ishmael's nation, the, the nation of the flesh, but I went with Isaac because he was the child of promise that I promised. I always do what I promise. I don't adjust to your insanity. And you can be grateful for that because that's how the people of Israel became the people they are. And then he went down into Esau and Jacob, remember? And he goes, let's take it a step further. It should have been Esau, not Jacob, because Esau was born first, and Esau is the beginning of the Edomite nation. So it should have been the Edomites that got to cross the Red Sea, and the Edomites that got to receive the law, and the Edomites that got to get the covenant of circumcision, and the Edomites that I protected and watched over, not the Israelites. So I picked Jacob instead of Esau because I did. That was my mercy to you, Israel. And so we kind of ended there. And, and, and you, you would think we get there and you go, oh, thank you, God. But we humans are funny, aren't we? Because now we're doing the math. Hold on. You, you picked Jacob over Esau. You know, now that you mention that, that doesn't sound right. And you picked Isaac over Ishmael. I mean, granted, it was a cool decision because we, but uh, boy, and if you're a Gentile in the church, you're going, wow, that sounds a little odd. I was driving in the car the other day um, with some of my kids, and we're ha- the kids are having this dialogue in the back, and it, it's not you know it's not going well, um, and so I decide to intervene, and then in my intervention I get sucked into the conversation, and at a certain point in the conversation the conversation turns and and goes against me, so I become the bad guy in the conversation, right? So they start making these declarations about things that they know about me that you know, aren't right and good. I mean, they're, they're insane things. They have no idea what they're talking about. So at a certain point, I turn around and I go, you know, the, the level of, uh, of your naivety and arrogance astounds me. I, mean, I, I thought those are good words for them to go and uh, look up. And so, uh, so I turn and say, uh, say that to them. And then um, one of my kids, um, a minute or two of silence, I'm not kidding. One of my kids goes, um, with all due respect, I don't like what you said to us. (laughs) Yep. It was very beautifully said. Um, And so my first thought in my head was to turn around and say, with all due respect, I don't care. Um, But uh, I don't remember really what I did from that point forward. I I just know like that was the oddest moment for me. Uh, Because have you ever had those moments where you're dealing with one of your children and and maybe you're having to affect some discipline or you're having to affect some some consequence or you're having to affect some growth or some challenge? And then in the midst of that, the child before you declares to you how insane your parenting skills are. (laughs) Have you ever had that? Like they somehow say to you, you have no idea what you're doing. You think this is going to help. You think what you're doing is going to teach me anything, but it ain't, right? And have you ever sat, sat in those situations where you, you're looking and you're going, <laughs> for, 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 43, have read many books on parenting, haven't read yours, oddly enough. <laughs> haven't read yours, but I think perhaps I should because you seem awfully confident in your assessments, Right? Ever been there? You know, when I get in those positions, and it, and it happens, 
um, I, I usually have a, a little strategy that I engage in in terms of approaching the child in that moment, okay? And, and my strategy doesn't always play out this way because sometimes frustration comes first and then the strategy, you know, falls by the wayside and I, I just become angry and that's no good. But when I can actually keep my head on straight, I kind of go in with a bit of a strategy. And my strategy always begins with me pulling the child close. So, you know, I, I, I get proximity. So I'm like, come, come, over, come over here. No, no, I don't want you to stand, stand right over here. Eye to eye, here we are, okay. So first of all, adult, child. Adult, child, adult, child, okay? So first of all, let's just establish the sandbox we're in, okay? <laughs> this is not a peer-to-peer -peer conversation. We are not arguing through parenting skills to see who's gonna win. Adult, child. So I, I start there usually in some format. I try to describe to them there is a giant difference between the two of us, and I know you sound awfully confident, but I know things you can't begin to imagine. And you don't know things you sure think you do. And so we start there, I establish that. Then once that's established, then I, I move into the second statement, and that statement usually in some format, either in a sentence or an explanation is, now, here's the deal. Since adult child is established, just so we're clear when we're done with this conversation, I do what I want, when I want, how I want in this context, and I don't care whether you love it, like it, or think it's awesome. I, I don't. Because at the end, I'm doing what I'm responsible for, knowing what I know, and I may even do it wrong because I'm human, but that doesn't matter. That's my problem that I will be held accountable for someday with someone else, not by you. Because you ain't the one I'm being held accountable for, for, by. You are the kid. So I've established, not peer-to-peer, -peer, and second of all, just so we're clear, when we're done with this conversation, if you think after a nice discussion, I might adjust to your insanity, it's not gonna happen. Because I know what I'm doing, though you may not see it, I know what I'm doing is ultimately leading somewhere. In other words, I have a much bigger story going on than you can imagine, and this little moment is not the whole story. And then usually, in some form, when I'm done with that, established all of that, I don't leave it there, though I could. What I then do is I try in some way to communicate to my children in those situations, just so you know, what I am doing is not because I'm an evil dictator that looks for new ways to punish my children. I'm doing this because I believe it leads to your good. In other words, I'm for you, not against you. And my action toward you that you are describing as insane is in fact part of a larger strategy that I believe will lead to your well-being. So I am for you while it feels like I'm being unfair to you. And the reason it feels that way is because you have no idea what I see and know. And someday you will, and then you'll go, oh. So, Paul encounters this moment in time. Esau and, and Jacob and Ishmael and Isaac and the, the next question obviously that should emerge is, so, so hold on, does this mean that God is unfair? Does this mean if God can pick and choose like that, this one over that one, Esau I hated, Jacob I loved, if God has the right to just do that, does that not make him unfair? Because it feels unfair. God should in some way um, uh, take into consideration the realities of the humans he's dealing with. H how good we are or not good, or our merit or our, or our realities or, or our heart. He should. He can't just do this, can he? 
And so Paul is going to answer that question for us, uh, to all of us, to the church in Rome, to the people of Israel. Let's turn to Romans chapter 9. It's on page 1046. 1046 if you're using one of our Bibles. Uh, Romans chapter 9 if you're using a smart device or one of the Bibles you brought. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 9 verse 14. Romans 9 14. So Romans 9 13 is where we ended last week and it says, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So there, there it is, right? Whew! Wow! Is that fair? Isn't that, isn't that an, an injustice of sorts? Okay, so watch. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Right? Fair question. Fair question. I love that Paul always uh, doesn't leave us hanging in these very difficult spaces to kind of figure out. He makes a declarative statement, uh, a thesis statement that he goes, first of all, just in case you're wondering whether the answer is going to be no, let's just, let's just establish that up front. Okay, here it is. Ready? By no means. Okay, so we already know what we're going to discover in the rest of this passage is that God is not, in fact, unfair. It is not an injustice that God is right and good despite what it seems to be to us. Now all we have to do is go discover why that is. All right, so watch. Watch what Paul does next. I love this. He says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, who is the he? God to Moses, right? So I love what Paul's doing here because Paul is unpacking stuff and he gets to this part, is God unfair because he did these things or because of what he does? And instead of Paul going, no, he's not, let me explain, Paul goes like this, no, he's not. Why don't you have a conversation with the Father, right? Let's, let's talk to God about this because this is going to be a big one for you. And so now he's going, what did, what did God say? And he puts God in the seat and God's looking at us. Now, what's going to happen next, just so you know, is God's going to go like this. Come here. No, no, no. Don't stand over there. Right here, please. Eye to eye. We, we need to talk, okay? And the first thing we're going to establish real quick is that this is not a peer-to-peer conversation. You ready? You ready? Here we go. Okay. <clears throat> For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, so, so, so first, right off the bat, not a peer conversation. I will do what I want, when I want, how I want, in any way I want, and I'm not going to adjust to your sensibilities. Just so we're clear, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion, okay? And Paul then clarifies, after God kind of just makes that statement, Paul clarifies, in case you're not catching what he just said, what he just said is, he just said, so when mercy is affected, it is not the result of human will or merit or action. It is the result of God's gracious wonder. So I love that he used the word will there and not just merit because we sometimes do this. It's not my works that get me right with God, but it is my choosing to follow God, right? The, the, the faith. But what he's saying here is human will or decision is also not on the table here. The mercy of God is the action of God's grace and God's grace alone. And he does it as he wishes, in any way he wishes. Okay, uh, peer-to-peer conversation established, right? Not peer-to-peer. Okay, 
Now, if we sit here, and if it stopped here, that'd be fine. God can do that. But by God's grace, he doesn't stop here, does it? Now, just in case we think God's being hypothetical, because that's the next thing, right? Oh, he's, he's saying that. Like, I, I have mercy on who I have mercy. I do what I want. He's not actually going to, like, do that. He's just saying that if he did, it'd be okay, okay? <laughs> so here's what God does next. Uh, so look, 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 look. Um, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Uh, who was Pharaoh? Remember Pharaoh, the guy that Moses was talking to? Did, did Pharaoh say, yes, let my people go? No, no, he didn't actually. He said no. Uh, you, you know the songs, right? And you've seen like the, the plays. So Pharaoh... Uh, plague after plague after plague, Pharaoh kept being stubborn until the last plague, which was terrible. Then he lets them go. And then what does Pharaoh do after he lets them go? He chases them down, causing God to have to part the Red Sea. What we find out here is that God wasn't reacting to Pharaoh. He wasn't going, okay, what can I throw at him next? Because I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping this guy makes a good decision. I mean, I really am. Okay, frogs. Let's do frogs. Pharaoh didn't like the frogs. Okay, man, blood. We make the river blood. Okay, we're at plague number nine. Please, Pharaoh, please make a wise decision. Otherwise, the death thing's got to come. One of the greatest displays of the gospel was in the reality that God told Israel to paint the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doors so that the angel of death would pass over. What was that a picture of? Christ who would rescue us. We have needed that picture every day since it happened. And God says here, I was authoring a story and I had a part that Pharaoh had to play. And if Pharaoh said yes after the frogs, there's no lamb, there's no blood, there's no picture. And if Pharaoh didn't chase them down, there's no Red Sea. I needed to show the world the beauty of my redemptive story and my power to affect it. And Pharaoh played a part in that. And his part was that he was stubborn. Boy, I'm glad God picked a stubborn person. Oh, hold on, hold on. We're not done. Look at, look at verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Oh, no. <laughs> Pharaoh was stubborn because that was a part in the story that God had him play. And it seems again like, whoa. So what's the next question that emerges if you're listening to this and you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on. God does this not only th hypothetically, but he actually did it in history. Real story. He does this stuff. I mean, Esau and Jacob was a real story too, and Ishmael and Isaac, and now the Pharaoh and Moses. So if God does this, if God affects his will on us, and then he can harden our hearts or soften our hearts as he sees fit, and he's not, he's not hoping we react to him, then the next question would be, then how can he hold us accountable? Because we can't resist his will. So in other words, when I am stubborn, or I, it, it must be God making me so, and so therefore, I'm not accountable to my story. I'm just a pawn in a game. So that would be the next question. The next question would be, hold on. Well, then how, then how can you hold me responsible for anything? Because you're just doing whatever you want and affecting your will in any way you want on anybody that you want. So let's see what, what, what we have to say about that. You will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? All right, that's a 
It's a great question. <clears throat> God's going to speak again now. And he's going to start this way, because this is a quote, again, from a place that God spoke. So this is all the times when Paul goes, this is not a conversation for me to have with you. I feel like you should talk to dad. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk to dad then. <clears throat> Verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So God's, God's little part here is not just peer-to-peer now. It's what I do secondarily with my kids, which is this. I am doing some things in our little story here that make no sense to you. I get it. You're looking at the immediate circumstances and going, this feels unfair. And frankly, dad, you affecting consequences on me or you directing me in this way or you making me do this, it's not gonna lead to me learning anything. So my suggestion would be you eliminate those and just let me be, because then I'll learn. And you see what I get to do then as dad is to go, uh, who are you again? What was the book you wrote? What's your doctrinal thesis on parenting? Like, I'm just curious, were you there when you were born? Well, you were, but did you have any cognitive ability to pick up the nuances of parenting at that point? Have you met with a thousand people talking through parenting skills? I mean, what is it you bring to the table? There's this cool story in the book of Job. You you all know the book of Job. If you've been around church at all, or even not, you probably know the story, because we love the book of Job, because anytime any little hard thing happens to us, we're like, "I'm, I'm, I'm like Job. You're like, no, you're not like Job. No, 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 no. Job's story is terrible. Ours is a little bit of a cakewalk, right? So comparatively. I'm not saying nobody's had a story like Job. I'm just saying oftentimes, like the first little thing goes wrong. I'm in a Job season. I'm like, Job lost everything systematically, one thing after the next, because God allowed the enemy of God to literally affect curses and destruction on the man. He's sitting full of boils, has lost his house and, and stuff and wife and kids and everything. And at a certain point, if you're Job, you're like, man, I'm cursed of God. And so he kind of does that. He's like, what are you doing? Where are you? And you know what God says to Job? He comes down and he goes, Job, just a quick question. Were you there when I made the foundations of the world? Just throwing it out there. Oh, no, you weren't. You weren't. You weren't born. You weren't made. You have no idea what history is. You have no idea what future is. You know, we can't even see the past or the, or the future accurately, can we? I mean, you go, no, we know the past. No, we don't. I mean, think about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Someday, when we're all dead and gone, they're going to mark the, the, the historical context of 2017 by our Facebook accounts and our Instagram accounts. How wrong are they going to be? <laughs> I mean, they're going to be like, that was the happiest time in human history. No, 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 we just don't write down on social media the horrors in our home. We put our family picture that took a horrible journey to create. And we're like, and then ding, 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 likes. We state verses of scripture on there like, oh, my day is full of God. And then, then we, we leave and we're like, this is miserable. But that we don't get the likes when we throw the misery on there. And so every now and then we're like, it's a hard day. And they're going to shape history by this stuff. See, everything we know about history is written down by somebody else that lived then that had an opinion. Suddenly you're feeling a little shaky, aren't you? 
What's true? I have no idea. I just know what we've got and we're learning from. And some of it we can kind of look at, but we're really just guessing a lot. And our future, we have no idea. So what's God, what God is saying to Job is, you, you, you understand the level of naivety and arrogance it is for a human being to see this much and to make judgments this big about God. Right? That's what we're doing. I, I see it all. I understand justice. I understand what is good and right because I have unbelievable experience. Uh, were you there when I created the foundations of the world? Well, no, not that, but I mean, I was there like a year ago. <laughs> wow. Do you know the future? Well, you, you told me in Revelation. No, 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 no. Not do you know what I told you. Do you actually know? No, I, I don't. Okay. So the level of naivety and arrogance you have to make giant judgments about me when all you know is this little bit is, is a, a relative level of insanity, isn't it? Here's what God is saying. Just like I said to my kids, I'm up to something bigger here than you can ever imagine. And for you to try to figure out how this little moment or this little event in history or this choice I made is somehow fair or unfair leaves you in a great deal of naivety. Be careful. I'm up to something really big. I'm writing a big story. Who are you, oh man, to tell me how I should deal with the clay? Okay, now watch what he does next. Now he's going to begin to step into beginning to explain some things, but first just saying, just so you know, I'm doing something big here. Watch this. Verse um, 22. <clears throat> what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and by the way, stop here for a second. When we say God's wrath, it's another way of saying God's justice, because remember, his wrath is what he affects to be just towards sin and death. Are you with me so far? God is not wrathful because he's moody. Okay? Had a bad day. I'm going to lose my temper a few times. Throw a couple stuff at the humans. Okay? That, that, that's out of mythology. God affects justice on sin and death. Anybody here want God not to be just toward evil? No, me neither. Anybody here want evil, sin, and death to reign and God to just let it be? No, I want his justice against those things. So God says, what if I, in order to satisfy justice, to, to satisfy the fact that I am a just God, to affect my wrath on sin and death, what if, look at this, what if desiring to show his justice or wrath and to make known his power... He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Whew, that was a lot. Okay, so just so we can catch what's happening here because it's kind of crazy and scary for a second and then you panic and then we're going to go through it. Okay, here we go, right? God's saying, what if, what if out of the lump of clay, that is our human story. That is us, right? There's the lump of clay because we're talking in the context of humans here. Out of the lump of clay, what if I am patiently enduring the continued existence of that lump of clay and the vessels in it that are literally uh, uh, facing destruction? Why? Is the lump of clay good? Mm, I, don't, I don't know. Okay, Garden of Eden. Let's go back, okay? 
We were created, it was awesome, and then what did we choose? We chose knowledge of good and evil of a character of God, didn't we? We chose to know more than He does instead of knowing Him. And what we got is exactly what He told us, the virus, sin, and death, or the virus, sin, that affected death. And so we are now, as a lump of clay, we are now the recipients of what? Justice, which includes wrath and destruction. Are you with me so far? So here's what he just said, what if, what if out of this lump of clay, I patiently endure what has been created for wrath and justice so that out of that clay, I can extract vessels of mercy to display my mercy to the human story. What if I'm doing that? Are you okay with that? Well, hold on. Who are the vessels of mercy and who doesn't get to be in? I understand. I'm asking a question. I, God, am doing this as I author the human story, my way to effect a redemptive end that produces a beautiful story and finishes the work I began in all the stories I start, I'm doing it this way. You have no idea how, why, and what, or even if it's fair, are you okay with that? What if God does that? Is that okay? Is that okay? <clears throat> okay, let's keep going. Again, we're now in the space of the hypothetical, right? How did the sentence start? What if? So now we go, okay, good. God's not actually doing that. It's just a what if statement. Um, unfortunately, the next sentence undoes that. Look at this, verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So literally, this is what Paul's saying. If God is enduring the lump of clay that should be destroyed by his wrath, he's enduring that and its continued existence and the continued vessels of wrath that come out of it so that he could extract out of it his people, the vessels of mercy, to demonstrate both his justice and his mercy. And he does that as he sees fit. Does he have the right to do that and does it still make him just and right? And then we go, well, if he did that, I'm not sure. And then he goes, by the way, he is doing that. What? Yes, even us. We are the recipients of this mercy. We are the vessels of mercy that have been extracted from the clay. We know Jesus. And those of us that are Gentile that were never the children of God, once said not to be the children of God, are the children of God now. His mercy has been affected, and we stand as recipients of it. It is an extraordinary thing. And as we stand here, and God begins to say, do you understand that what I'm affecting that feels off for you because you are the child looking at the parent doing things and directing things and you have your own parenting strategy that you think is good and right, that what I'm affecting is bigger than you can ever imagine and wait for it now, it is for you. Oh, he's not done. Watch this. This is where we get into the now. Come close. I'm doing this for you because I love you and I'm choosing to de demonstrate my mercy to you. Watch this now, watch. Now he speaks directly about Israel, but it's a context that expands beyond Israel. Watch this. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Okay, so there's the context. Though the number of the sons of Israel 
be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Okay, that's a very interesting statement because now he's answering where we started this chapter, right? Hold on, if any of uh, ethnic Israel doesn't accept Jesus and therefore are not saved, how are you fulfilling your promise to Israel? And here he's answering that again. I never said every ethnic Israelite would would be saved. In fact, I said a long time ago, though they will be as numbered as the sands of the seashore, only a remnant of them will be saved. What is a remnant? In the dictionary, other words for remnant, a, 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 a fragment a piece of. So when a remnant's left behind, a, a fragment of a whole is left behind. So here's what he's saying. Do you understand that my promise was not to save the whole of ethnic Israel, but it was that out of ethnic Israel, I will always hold a remnant. In fact, what we're about to see is that his mercy is that he has a remnant of his people throughout history from the beginning to the end. In other words, he will always have a people. He will always have a people. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Watch, watch, watch where this goes. This is insane what he says next. Look at this. Verse 28. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, watch this. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What did he just do? Here's what he just did. You'll find out in a second why. God sat down and went like this. You have no idea how much I'm for you, do you? You have no idea how much I'm fighting to show you my mercy, do you? So let me explain it to you. You should all be dead. What? You should all be dead, all of you. Dead and damned. No. No, no, let's let's play it out, okay? Adam and Eve. They choose the knowledge of good and evil over the knowledge of God and over intimacy with God. They abandon him, sin against him, and defy him. What should have happened to Adam and Eve? Dead. Dead. Did he kill them? No. He allowed them to birth a human race. Cain and Abel. Oh, they're such sweet boys. (laughs) Not really. Actually, they try to kill each other. It's really bad. He should have killed them. Didn't kill them. They continued a a line. Let's take it a little further. Let's go to the flood incident, okay? What was the statement in Genesis about the flood incident again right before the flood? Every intent and thought and action of mankind was evil. So what should happen then? Dead. End of the human race. What does God do? He pulls a fragment out of that story. A fragment, a family, Noah and his family. They were no less affected by sin, but he preserves them. And he makes them what they need to be, so he pulls them out. A fragment is preserved of the human story. (laughs) After Noah, it goes really, really well until the Tower of Babel. Not really, it progressively gets worse until the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel incident. We will be like you! What should have happened? Lightning strike, tower crumbles, everybody dies. Did he do that? No, he separated them into nations. Then the nations started fighting against each other and hating each other and and being self-destructive. What should he have allowed? Just let it be end of the human story. But what does he do? He pulls out of the nations a nation, a fragment, a, a piece, and he begins to lay himself out for that nation through the law and the covenants and the beauty of that. Then the story of Israel, the very nation he picks, okay? Uh, what should have happened to Israel multiple times over? Dead, dead, dead. 
dead and dead. You can read the Old Testament, right? I mean, it starts before the promised land, right? I'm going to give you the promised land. We don't want to go. They're like giants. Trust me. No. All right. We're going to wander in the desert and slowly die out. But what am I going to do? I'm going to preserve out of all of you a fragment because my story is not over for the human race. Then Israel goes through multiple things where they should have been left for dead and he preserves every time a remnant, always has, always will. And then he brings the Gentiles into the story and we become part of this remnant of the human race, the people of Jesus who are now those who belong to God. And throughout history, though you look back on history, there should have been multiple times where the entire reality of the gospel should have died. But God never let that happen because in every generation, he preserved for himself a remnant of people. And he's so good that he even says to Israel, just as I am preserving a remnant out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, I am also preserving a remnant out of you. So you are not left behind. I have not abandoned you. You, along with all the other nations, will also have always a, a, a sign of my faithfulness to you. There will always be a faction, a, a, a fraction, a, a piece that I will preserve for mercy so that all will know that though you deserve to be dead, you are not. We should be dead, but we are not. The human story should be dead, but it is not. See, what God is saying here is, I know you don't get it the way I do things. I know as a child, you look at me in your naivety and go, that's unfair. That's not how it should work. Remember, not peer to peer. Remember too, I do what I want, when I want, how I want, because I know things you can't possibly, and I'm writing a story you can't possibly imagine. And my story is good. And number three, I am for you, not against you. What is God telling us, telling the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 9, in this part where we have to confront the authority and sovereignty of God in all things that he authors as he wishes, chooses as he wishes, does as he wishes, not by the will of humanity, but by the will of God, not by our merit, but by his grace. What is he trying to show us? Here it is. Ready? I've got this, people. I've got this, God says. I've got it. I've got this. Stop worrying about how this plays out. I've got this. Listen to this real quick, okay? I'm, uh, just, just real quick. Revelation uh, chapter 7, okay? Revelation chapter 7. The book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, uh, John is having a vision of what is our future, which is outside of time, right? Of heaven and of all that is occurring there in the end of the great story of redemption. And listen to what he writes here. Uh, Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How many nations are represented there? Every nation, tongue and tribe. How is that possible? There are tribes and tongues and people that have died in, in Amazonian jungles that have never heard the gospel. Huh? I know. Are they present there? All of them? Not necessarily. Some. See, there's a remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation there. And who did that? Us awesome humans? No, 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 no. Just God. Just God. Folks, what I just read to you is true. It's already true. 
God is not hoping to preserve a people for himself. Really, he's not. He's not hoping that we are great, uh, are great at getting it right. And so we go, we go take care of all the people on the planet. And, and he's not hoping people choose him. He's not hoping that they hear the gospel and we articulate it so soundly that, that somebody goes, oh my gosh, you're amazing. I'm going to come to Jesus. He's not hoping. He's not hoping. He's authoring. He's affecting. He's doing. Because he will have for himself a people, and they will include from every tribe, tongue, and nation a remnant that are his. And he will do it because he is merciful. Because the human race, the lump of clay, deserves his wrath, not his mercy. What else is he saying to us? (laughs) Stop making really big judgments about me when you have really little knowledge. Just stop. You're making yourself miserable. That's what I tell my kids all the time. Look, you can spend yourself miserable constantly trying to figure out how I'm an idiot and you're awesome. I'm fine with that. Like, you can, every time we do this, you can go, you can't believe you just have no idea. And then you walk around, you're like mad and frustrated and dad's crazy. And if he would just get it, then everything would be fine. And you'll be miserable. I won't be miserable. I will be fine. I have a job and, 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 and I have a family and I love my wife and I have kids and I have a, a bright future. You will be homeless. You will be miserable because you won't learn, right? I mean, isn't that what we do? Now, they won't because they'll grow and learn like we did because we were once them and they were, they, they were now kids. And so it's okay. But it's like this thing like, like stop, stop making giant judgments about me when you only know this little and I know this much. Just like God is saying to us, stop making giant judgments about what is good and fair and right for me when you know this much and I know this much. You don't even have an accurate view of history, let alone knowing the future, and I have an accurate view. No, wait, I am in all those spaces presently. Stop judging me and start trusting me. Which brings us to that piece. The sooner you and I trust God because of who we know he is rather than because of what we think he does, the sooner we will be free. God has not revealed to us in scripture all the reasons he does what he does. He has not. Some, yes, but not all. He does lots of things you won't understand and I won't understand. He does them in the grand scheme of history, like we just read in Romans 9, and he does them right on planet Earth during your time and mine. Circumstances happen all the time that we go, hold on, why didn't God prevent that? And why didn't God do that? And why did God allow this? And why is that? I get it. Lots of stuff happens that is difficult for us to grasp. And if we are judging God or or our ability to trust God based on what we are observing and what we think he's doing, then we will never trust him rightly. God did not reveal to us all that he does and why he does it, but did he reveal to us his character, who he is? Oh, in details you can't imagine. This thing from Genesis to Revelation is an entire revelation of the goodness of God in every way. And when we're done with this book, we shouldn't go, I get how God works. We should go, I get who God is. And by, by what I've discovered he is, that is enough for me to trust him forever with whatever he chooses to do. I tell my kids all the time, the sooner you'll trust me for who I am and not for what you think I'm doing, the sooner you'll be free. And it's the same with us and God. Trust who he is. Trust who he is. And by the way, you should be dead. (laughs) Let's never forget that. 
Because though we should certainly realize he's got this and certainly realize we need to stop making judgments about him based on our little bit of knowledge and certainly learn to trust him for who he is and not because of what he does. At the end of the day where we encounter his mercy again, where we get closer to Romans chapter 12, therefore in view of your mercy, we should always end here. We should be dead. We are clay that is deserving of wrath. And out of that clay, he has molded vessels of mercy from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And by his will and grace alone, he will make that happen. And we are participants in that redemptive story because he lets us, not because he needs us. And we are recipients of that story because he loves us and he's gracious to us and he's merciful, not because we are meriting our way there or willing our way there. We are indeed the recipients of his mercy. And that should bring us to our knees and expressing a worship and wonder of God beyond our human capacity. Let's pray. God, I don't know. You are so good. You really are. And, and some of this stuff, God, as a child, I stand before you and I'm still a bit shaken by it, honestly. I'm a tad worried that it seems like some things there are not quite what they should be. And so I walk away from passages like this, God, and a part of me, that little part of me that still Renault the child kind of goes, gosh, God, I don't know. But I ask you to draw me back to where I belong, which is that I know you and who you are. And though I may not understand all the intricacies of how you do things, that I can stand on this, that whatever you are up to, when it's all said and done, here's what I know. It will finish the work you began in every story. It will make all things new. It will be, produce a redemptive end. It will expand your kingdom, life, light, and freedom into all darkness. It will leave sin and death destroyed. And it will, dis it will demonstrate in extraordinary wonder your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. How we get there, God, I choose to leave with you. Help me trust you in, in the journey. But also help me to wrestle with these things so that I would know you deeply in your sovereignty and in your grace and mercy, not as two separate things, but as one and the same. Remind me each day that I should be dead spiritually dead, physically not even existing. You should, have, you should have destroyed this lump of clay before the flood, in the flood, at the Tower of Babel, throughout multiple stages of human history, and even today. And yet here we stand, the remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including Israel, standing as a display of your mercy and invited to go into all the world and share the gospel, your mercy, to all that we encounter, knowing that among all those out there, many will come to know you because you pursue them with your sovereign grace. Lead us down this path and teach us to trust you more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.